Welcome to Woke and Wired, a new conversation about expanded consciousness and entrepreneurship. Hello guys, welcome back to Woke and Wired, a podcast where we talk about entrepreneurship and spirituality and personal growth in the world of endless digital possibility. So we explore the inner lives of some of the most creative and interesting people and business people that I know so that you can find your own woke way in this wired world. If you're new here, welcome. If you're coming back, welcome back. Make sure you check in to the previous episodes as there's so much wisdom and inspiration there. I have been a little bit on the DL because I'm in the middle of recording the audio part for my conscious social media course. And part of it is guided meditations and visualizations. And I'll be honest with you, I was very nervous before I started recording them because I've led them to people at retreats and events, but I've never recorded. So it was a bit nerve wracking, but as I'm getting more into that, it actually feels so liberating and exciting to share this new kind of work for me. And I have meditated myself for many, many years and I've studied it. And it's taking some courage to step into the role of guiding it. And it's definitely feeling like something very, very aligned. And I'm already considering taking the meditation part and sharing that outside of the course as well. So today, my guest on the podcast is Emily Schult, who is a brand strategist and consultant. She has worked with brands like Chobani. She managed digital presence for them and was a part of getting the brand to where it is, becoming one of the pioneers in social media. She has started a food conference. She is getting ready to launch Pop-Up Grocer, which is a pop-up 10-day retail store in New York City in Soho that will showcase natural, exciting food products and mostly new, awesome brands. And Emily and I met through the world of food. I think it was when she invited me to come to the conference. We ended up getting coffee. And Emily's one of those creative people that has a lot of projects going on at the same time both entrepreneurial and consulting. And in this episode, we talk exactly about that. How do you define yourself and do you need to put yourself in a box? And how do you introduce yourself when you are multifaceted, creative entrepreneur, which I also consider myself to be? She also shares the concept of solo dining and how eating and taking yourself to eat And cooking at home for yourself as well can be an act of self-love and really being present for yourself. That story actually ended up on Garance DeRay's website, and that's how I found out about it and reached out to Emily for this interview. We talk about setting boundaries with technology. As someone who does digital work for clients and needs to stay on top of trends, Emily knows that it can be quite exhausting to be online all the time. So one of the things she actually has started is a series of events that are tech-free and phone-free. We also talk about how digital landscape is changing and where it's all going and the things that are going to be important. 
And ultimately, the reason I enjoyed this episode and I'm excited to share it with you is because it all comes back to connecting with yourself. Yes, social media, technology, internet can open up so many possibilities, can bring connections and opportunities. But ultimately, if we don't find that time to stay connected with ourselves, then nothing else is going to feel fulfilling and really count. So I hope this episode inspires you to rethink your boundaries with social media and with your phone and find some more time to truly connect to your essence and to what's important to you beyond what's in front of you right this moment. Enjoy this episode. And if you're inspired by it, take a screenshot and post it on Instagram and tag at WokenWired as well as at Emily Schult. That's S-C-H-I-L-D-T. And before we dive in, I want to say thank you to everyone who took the time to review and rate the podcast on iTunes. This month's winner is Cloud52. She wrote, I followed Ksenia through Breakfast Criminals to Woke and Wired. Unique. She's interested in business and consciousness, and the podcast blends practical tips and grounded inspiration while talking to business and creative rising stars. Modern awareness at its best. Thank you, Ksenia. Thank you, Cloud52. Get in touch with me by email by to claim your session and we'll get it scheduled. Okay, guys, I have Emily Schult here. It is raining in Brooklyn. I think we're almost neighbors. You're in Fort Greene, right? I am. In Fort Greene, I'm in Bedstow. We're supposed to do this in person, but things happen. We're doing it cozy at home and it's rainy, so it's perfect. So Emily and I actually went all the way back into my Gmail archives to see when we spoke for the first time on the internet, and it was 2015. And from what I have seen in my Gmail, it looks like our first connection was over Bitten, a food conference that you had created. And then I remember I still had a full-time job, or maybe I was freelancing, but I was working in fashion, and you had to come over to meet me for coffee or something. And we just talked about social media and all the things that we both love so much for a long time. And since then, I've been following you on Instagram and seeing all the cool things you're up to. And I can't wait to catch up on everything. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that I'm doing cool things because it doesn't always (laughs) feel that way. feels like I'm paying bills and trying to get a workout in, which doesn't feel, you know, that special. It just feels like the daily grind. Right. All right. Well, we're going to get in there and hopefully give you and everyone a perspective on reality and also on the cool things that you talked about. But the question that I want to start by asking you is your Instagram bio. It says Emily Sheld. If you guys want to follow along, it's exactly what it is. And I'm going to link it in the show notes. And all your bio says is human comma being. And then it also links to another account, yesjustyes.me. So what is it that you actually do, Emily, besides being a human? (laughs) I mean, that is generally where my focus is on a day-to-day, is being a good, curious person. But for work, I am a brand consultant for companies in the natural food space. Um, So everything from kale chips to avocado sauce to dairy-free yogurt. Um, And typically, I work with companies that are at the point where they're just bringing their products to market. So I help them launch. And I'm a bit of a slashy, I guess, true to my 
generation as a millennial, I do a bunch of things. So while I do that, and that is certainly my bread and butter, I also am a writer, a freelance writer, and I typically have a creative project on the side as well. So right now I'm organizing a pop-up shop and and that's one for the holidays this year and then also much larger one for next year in the spring. So I like to keep busy in short. <laughs> all right, so you're doing all the things and out of all the things, which one is making you feel the most woke right now? Mm, I think honestly it's the collection of all of them that is making me feel the most woke. I mean, I think um I was really insecure for a long time about doing a bunch of things at once because I thought that that meant that I was misguided or lacking the ability to be focused. Mm. And then I just started to own it <laughs> and that, you know, I got more comfortable with it and realized that what really makes me happy and motivated on a daily basis is to have my hands in several pots. I think this is such a liberating thought that we don't talk about enough because the truth is anyone you meet in New York you ask them what they do they might say I'm a yoga teacher but be- behind that there's like 10 different gigs so and it's okay and or if you're a creative and an artist most likely you're juggling a bunch of different projects as well and I'm actually also arriving at a similar realization where a lot of people I've interviewed for this podcast or a lot of my friends They also do different things, but there's still like one main thing, like one main thread. But for me, I literally have, or it feels like I have my hands in so many baskets. I have the podcast, I have the crystal account, I have the breakfast criminals, I have my social media consultant, I have my transformational retreat vlogs on YouTube. And I took me years to figure out a way to tie them together and to speak about them in a way where I don't sound crazy. And now I actually see how me having different things, when I grow in one thing, it reflects in the other. And when I need a break from one thing, I have all these other ones to go to. And it's like just a matter of language and owning it that it took for me to arrive to that place. I'm curious, what was your journey to arriving to the place of owning it? Did you do anything specific or was it just a thought that made you find peace with it? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I totally agree with everything you just said. And I don't know if I can identify a specific moment. It definitely has been an evolving thing over time. I did read a really good book a couple of years ago. It's called Body of Work by Pamela Slim. If you're a friend of mine, you've heard that sentence so many times because I recommended it that year to like everyone that I encountered. People on the street. I was like, Pamela Slim, do the work. But it's a book and it's it's also an activity book. So there are a lot of exercises in there, which helps you actually go through the process. But that process being identifying what the common thread is, which then is really what you hang your hat on as far as your identity, instead of this one title that we're all supposed to have. And I mean, I think that's the that's the issue with the conversation, especially in this country. I mean, our job is is the second question after what is your name? You know, it's like, it's, it's the most important thing about us. And so I think that for people like you and me, 
who do so many things, answering that question becomes difficult. So then the then you feel like answering the who am I question is difficult, which is such a more like explosive realization. So I think once I understood more what the thread is and that being, I don't want to say purpose because I think purpose is such a um, nearly impossible thing to identify, but the things that I'm passionate about and that really drive me daily, then I, I just, I felt a lot better about, about doing multiple things because I understood how they all were interconnected. And just even in my career, like I work at the beginnings of things, you know, I help products launch and then I generally, you know, they'll get someone in house to continue what I started and I move on to the next project. And I was uncertain about that being okay for a while too. And I had this coffee date with a woman that I really admire. And she was telling me about her friend who's the closer. And he literally just comes in at the end of like big deals and, you know, makes sure that the company gets the amount of money that they want from the deal. And that's his sole job is just to come in at the end. And so to your point, I just was like, oh, I need to reframe what I do. I'm, I'm the starter, you know, and that's a great thing. Mm. So yeah, I think it is just about language and how you think about it rather than having to have that one title that seems to be demanded of us. Right. And I was listening to this, I think it was a podcast with Dave Asprey, and he was talking about how he introduces himself as someone who also does a million different things. Instead of just spitting out everything he does, he asks the person, what do you do? What are you interested in? And then he curates his answer based on that. Mm, I love that. So that's the way too. But I want to go back to body of work. When you were talking about things that drive you and that common thread, I'm curious, first, is it the same as it was when you got into this work? And second, what is it? <laughs> I mean, I think, yes, it is the same. But I think it's only really time that's allowed me to see that in hindsight. I don't know if I really would have been able to know what I know now. Let's say like, you know, when I took my first job or when I took my first client and that thread is not only in my professional career, but it's also just in my personal life and, and passion. So looking at all of them as one, I've been able to identify that I'm sort of obsessed with identity. <laughs> and for me, identity is something that I really feel like in the past few years have only came into and started to understand who I am, what makes me tick and what I'm excited about. And that's through a lot of work, through a lot of therapy and time with myself and the processing of my thoughts. And I think that, you know, identity is what, and an under strong sense of identity is what allows us to feel like we belong in the world. And what's it's what allows us to connect with other people and build a sense of community. And so that's what I've been able to do with myself, but that's also essentially what I do in my work. I, I help brands, you know, or products before they're really brands, figure out what it is that they distinctly bring to the world and why people should care about that and thus how they connect with people. And then as a result, I mean, sure, we help them sell their product, but more importantly, help them like truly connect with their consumer and thus build a community. So identity, belonging and connection are like the three big things for me. 
Hmm. It's interesting. On the one hand, I totally get the vital importance of identity, especially in the online world where people take like two seconds to make a perception of who you are, or what the brand is, and then they decide whether they want more of that or not. So having a clear and concise identity is very important. But at the same time, from all the personal development work I've done and from the Path of Love retreat, which is an Osho-based retreat, and it's not like Wild Wild Country, if, <laughs> if you know what I mean, but it's in a way it's similar. What I've learned from this work that profoundly impacted my life, I actually have YouTube videos about it where I share the whole journey and you can watch the progress, not just in my words, but in my eyes and in my body language. I learned that, yes, it's very important to know who we are, to find that sense of belonging. But at the same time, then it's important to not, uh, what's the word, clinch to the identity because, or cling. It's important not to cling to the identity (laughs) because otherwise it keeps us away from expansion. So for me personally, what I'm working on now, it's like, yes, knowing who I am, being clear on what I want and where I'm going, but then not letting that be something that stops me from trying new things or being someone else for a day. Yeah. As long as I'm being um, a good human. That's a very timely thing for you to say to me, actually, because I was talking with someone last night about this very thing. Like I, I spend a lot of time alone. I take myself out to dinner once a week on Thursdays. I have now started to take myself out on Sundays and I do those things, you know, with, with a lot of uh, routine dedication. I really enjoy it. I think that's, that's honest and true to who I am. I really, I'm an introvert. I need that time alone to refuel and re-energize myself. And so that has become a really core part of who I am but I was talking to this person last night about how I fear that I've perhaps attached myself to being alone and being solo so much that I may be pushing away the opportunity to not spend so much time alone, be that, you know, in my relationship status to find a partner or just, you know, maybe learn that I, sure, I like to spend a lot of time alone, but I don't need as much time as I thought or, you know, whatever that may be. So anyway, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that, about how we can be strong in our sense of identity, but not so much so that we don't allow ourselves to evolve and grow. Right. It's such an important one. I remember when I was single, and that was for a big part of my life, I, especially when I lived in San Francisco and then in New York, I would just take myself out to movies. And through the whole movie, it feels great because I feel like I don't need to talk to anyone. I don't need to book an advance to get a good seat because if you're solo, you always get a great movie seat. That's the upside. And it was great. But then when the lights come on at the end of the movie, I kind of feel a little weird. Like, are people going to look at me, think I'm a creep? But, you know, with time, I was just like, I really just enjoy going to movies alone. And this is what I do. So I learned to be comfortable with it for the most part. But then going out to eat, I still feel a little weird about it, especially if it's a dinner, even though I think it's sometimes such a beautiful experience to just treat ourselves to that luxury of of having that space of being with ourselves and not being on our phone, but just connecting with a waiter or connecting with another person. Like when I travel, I feel super comfortable dining out alone because then I most often make friends and have great conversations with locals. And that's when there's space for 
amazing synchronicity and just being invited to the next thing and then to the next thing and learning about the poison. But at the same time, I totally hear what you're saying. It's like, if I got attached to doing those things alone, there wouldn't be energetic space for me to imagine that there's someone else doing it with me. And the book that I read before I met my boyfriend is Calling in the One. And have you heard about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you actually done it? I have not. I'm looking at it on my shelf right now, though. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I had it on my shelf. I like opened it and I closed it and I was like, I'm not ready for this shit. And then I came back to it like a year and a half later and I actually did the exercises. And basically, guys, if you don't know what it is about, it's visualizing how your life would be like when you do meet an amazing life partner and actually creating physical and energetic space in your life to spend time with someone, to be with someone. What would it be like to wake up with someone you you love? What would you do? How would your life look like? And for me, doing those visualizations and creating that energetic space to give and receive love, that's what really opened up that possibility. Yeah, it's such an interesting balance. I don't I definitely don't have an answer, but I totally know what you're saying. And so what you recently wrote on Garan's story is exactly about this thing of Yes, Just Me. And now I saw that it's turning into a newsletter. Can you tell me more about how this whole thing came about and what the thinking behind it is? Yeah, I mean, the practice of taking myself out once a week really just started because I wanted to go to the myriad of restaurants that are available and always popping up in New York. And when I first moved to New York, I was working 12 hour days and was a very private person in a professional setting. So I didn't befriend my coworkers. So I just didn't even really have that many people to ask to go to dinner with me. I also have a bit of an issue with feeling like everything is a burden, but that's, that's probably more of a conversation from my therapist. But yes, I was just like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take myself out. And I started ticking off the restaurants on my immediate to-do list. And then, you know, calendars get crazy, social obligations, networking, whatever. So it became a calendar item to ensure that I could continue to do it and wouldn't just let everything else pop up and get in the way. And I can't remember why I picked Thursday, but just felt like it was nearing the weekend. I could maybe have a couple more glasses of wine than I would typically (laughs) And that would be all right because like Fridays, people don't have to do much, right? And so it was set and it and it became a thing. And it really, it didn't mean a whole lot to me in the beginning other than eating food. But what I noticed was how uncomfortable I was in the beginning, not just with being by myself, but with being without technology, which is one of the rules, I guess, that I have for that, for that evening. You know, door to door, I, my phone is in my purse. Wow. So I was so uncomfortable that I really felt like, okay, I have to keep doing this thing, not just because I want to, you know, enjoy the latest and greatest in the food world in New York, but because I've got to figure out why I can't be by myself and why I have this neurotic tick to dig for my phone every 10 minutes. Yep. Like probably everyone else. Yeah, it just felt really important. So the more I did it, the more I overcame those feelings. And I had three hours to, yes, have this luxurious dining experience, but also just be alone with my thoughts and process them 
And sometimes I would meet strangers and sometimes I would go on dates with those strangers or I would be pen pals with those strangers. (laughs) And it just exposed me to new parts of myself or parts that I needed to get back in touch with, as well as people in the city, places in the city that I probably never would have been, you know, recommendations from strangers started coming to me once they understood what I was doing. And it just became this, this really, really special thing, a really important thing in my life. And it, it still is. I've been doing it for like more than three years. So. Wow. And you go to a new place every time. I go to a new place every time. Yeah. So you know everything about New York restaurants, pretty much. <laughs> yes, which I'm scared to say because I'm already the restaurant concierge among my friends. But yes, I'm I'm pretty knowledgeable. <laughs> do you keep a list or how do you remember? Oh, gosh. Uh, I shouldn't share either. But yes, embarrassingly, I have a very detailed Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> it's organized oh by neighborhood and cuisine. I bold all the places that I've been, I put in red, all of the ones that have like a sense of urgency. <laughs> it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> that sounds like a beginning of an incredibly popular business, like per- a website. Perhaps, perhaps it's been a consideration. Yeah. I love that. And I, what I love about it the most is this idea that we tend to put things off in our life, whether it's until we lose weight or until we meet someone to spend time with, or until we get a better job or make more money. It's just a thing that we as humans do. It's universal. So if you do it, don't worry, you're not alone. Everyone does a certain version of that. And the fact that you are committing to this practice of taking yourself out every week to a restaurant you really want to go to, it's like claiming to the universe, hey, I'm not waiting for anything. I'm here, I'm fully present, and I'm doing things that make me alive and connect me with myself and reveal new parts of myself to me. Yeah. Yeah. The waiting is, the waiting is interesting. I think the more I did this and the more I started to tell people I was doing it, the reactions also encouraged me to continue doing it because, you know, New York is where at least I imagine some of the strongest, most independent, most self-assured women live. And yet I would be talking to these women and they still were like, oh my God, you wait, you sit by yourself and you don't read and you don't listen to a podcast, you know, like, oh my God, no, I could never do that. And I was so surprised by that reaction. And then, you know, that led to a conversation about other things that women do or don't do by themselves. And, you know, one friend remarked to me that she doesn't cook for herself because she feels like that's kind of sad and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, I just started to understand that there are a lot of women out there who aren't really living their lives. Like they're just waiting for company. And I'm certainly not saying that I don't enjoy company. I do, but I enjoy both. And I think that that's what I've learned is that it's just so important to be by yourself, if only to learn that cooking for yourself isn't sad because that means that you are enough, you know, and your company is enough. And that's just like the most valuable lesson. Okay. That's going to be a podcast quote. Cooking for yourself means you're enough. (laughs) Seriously, it's, it's, I remember anywhere I've lived with roommates, without roommates, I always looked for a nice kitchen because I love to eat. And for me, cooking is such a meditative process. And it's like my time to be with myself and do what I love and then nourish my body and nourish myself on an energetic level while I'm cooking it as well. And yeah, I've always, when I was single, imagined it would be so nice to cook with someone and for someone. And I would imagine this big kitchen where we're cutting up vegetables together and sauteing them. 
And, but at the same time, yeah, it's super fun. We do those things together now, but I cherish moments when I cook for myself just as much. And you're right. It does take a certain level of being there for yourself to be able to do that. And actually, because this part comes easily to me, I've always loved cooking since I was a kid. It's interesting to think that there are many women and men who feel that it's sad. So I'm going to think about how I can redefine that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's just, it's, it sparked a lot of uh, realizations about beliefs that are just foreign to me, but are seem to be very common. Right. So what I want to ask you about is how did this whole story end up on Garan's story? How did it get picked up? I just started to feel like this was something that I needed to share. And about, gosh, I guess a year ago, I was living in London for a month in the summer. And I just sat on a bench one day and like wrote down my thoughts and I uh, wasn't serious about sending it anywhere until this past summer. So I sent it their way and they published it. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, so here's another thing I want to get back to. In the beginning, you were talking about things that you do and you were talking about your job and your bread and butter and then creative things you have on the side. I'm curious to see when have you felt that you've been able to find an intersection of the two when it both is lucrative and feels super fulfilling on like a human soul level at the same time. How, what, and how does, do those things happen? How do you find that alignment between the two? Has there been a sweet spot when you can kill two birds at the same time and do what you're obsessed with and make money? It's a good question. I mean, I think I certainly have been privileged to have a career that is filled with my interests. I've never been someone who's like had to really, you know, drag themselves to work every day. Right. Food has always been a passion of mine and I've known that. So I've followed that. So I don't think, yeah, it's, it's not like I, I have really ever put my, a lot of energy towards something that didn't interest me or I didn't feel like it really served a greater purpose for me. Mm hmm. But that being said, like I was saying, you know, when I, when I really realized how important identity for the purpose of like belonging and community was to me, I started to focus on, yes, yeah, social media in the beginning. And that's still very much what I do, but also offline events, particularly as I became more interested myself in removing my use of technology or limiting and setting boundaries around my use of technology. Mm-hmm. So that's been a really good evolution of my career and my interest in community is these gatherings and experiences that, you know, are outside of Instagram, as great as Instagram is. Speaking of Instagram, one of the things that you say on your website is that in your years of marketing, the media landscape has completely transformed. I'm curious to see from maybe the projects you're working on are just something you're thinking about. Where is all of it going? Is social media and Instagram going to be as important? That is a great question and one I do not feel qualified to answer. I mean, I think that's part of the excitement of what I do is it is a question mark. And that's why I say that I'm also excited about identity and things that 
are at the core and but grow and evolve despite the popular medium? Because I guess to directly answer your question, do I think that Instagram is going to be the thing forever and ever? No. I mean, I got two emails last week on the same day, actually, from two different people in very different parts of my life who said that they were quitting social media. I mean, how many times have you seen someone on Instagram say that, you know, they're over it and they don't like it and they feel like it's something that they just have to participate in for, you know, the purpose of self-promotion or promotion of your business or whatever, because that is the medium, that is the popular medium. But I don't, I don't know if it has the ability to last forever. I mean, nothing does, you know, there's always something new. That's just the way of the world. And my job is to adapt to whatever the next thing is. Right. To anyone who feels like they just have to be on it, but they're not getting anything from it, I would challenge you to clean up your feed, clean up who you're following and make sure that instead of surrounding yourself with people and brands and accounts that deplete you, ones that actually inspire you and motivate you to do something amazing. Like we've been watching nonstop YouTube videos about living big in a tiny house. That's the name of the YouTube channel. And it's all about people who renounce huge houses and possessions and move into nature and build their own little homes and live minimal lives. And if not social media, I wouldn't hear those stories. So I think there's so many incredible things that are happening on social media and through social media and because of social media that it would be not to our advantage to disregard that and focus on things that are not as inspiring. So clean up your feed, people. (laughs) Rule number one, conscious social media. Yeah. I mean, it does. It requires a lot of intent, I think, to to do it in a healthy way. And unfortunately, you know, not everyone is capable of that or dedicated to doing that. And that will put them in an unfortunate position of being somewhat like absorbed or under its control. Um, But yeah, I totally agree with you. And honestly, I should, I should do that myself Should practice more what I preach because there are so many accounts and people that I wouldn't have experienced if it weren't for social media, but I find that they are buried amidst a lot of clutter. So I should make note to add that to my to-do list for sure. Right. Do that, do that ASAP. It makes such a big difference. I do routine cleaning of my accounts probably every couple of weeks and it makes such a difference. That's great. You're, yeah. So oh. with the ones that do inspire you, you know, you're someone who works with really cool brands and I'm curious, what are some of the accounts or maybe campaigns you've seen or something a brand has recently done that you thought was just smart and inspiring and exciting and different? That's a great question. I mean, I think what I'm seeing happen among a lot of small brands and especially a lot of brands that are available exclusively online, that they're all banding together. And, you know, they may offer like one individual and valuable product, but together as sort of a family of brands, like the new Johnson and Johnson, I guess, but uh, across various categories. Anyway, they're like a full lifestyle offering. So I I can think specifically, like there's this hat brand that I love called uh, Tio and Tia. And they, you know, either are also the founders of or are friends with the founders of several other companies that make other apparel and accessories, jewelry. And they just recently put on this pop-up shop is what inspired me to 
do my own, where they brought in all of their brands as well as a family of other brands that I felt like all together really communicated this like southwestern in tune like style. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool, and I think that it's getting difficult the more dispersed the shopping experience becomes because there are so many small brands. You know, even in food, it's like I have probably 15 different nut butters that I love and I have to go to, you know, our coconut butters or whatever. And I have to go to so many different online and physical locations to get all of these products. It's like why the shopping mall was created. And as part of me, that kind of wants that back. You know, I just want to go to like a one-stop shop because it's, it's a very, uh, again, like an intentional and exhausting shopping experience. So why would you need 15 different coconut butters at once? <laughs> no, you don't need them. But like, and I don't have them all at once, trust me. But over the course of time, you know, I like to dabble in different products. I'm not, I'm not someone who buys the same thing week after week. So yeah, it, it's helpful when it, these brands come together and help you navigate that a little bit better. Totally. What are some things that people and brands you think get wrong about digital strategy nowadays from the work you've done? Hmm. I mean, there's just a lot of bad content out there. <laughs> I think, you know, brands, particularly when it comes to social media, think that it's better to be there and participate in the conversation. And that being like any conversation, then really focusing on quality over quantity. So that's definitely something that I work with my clients on is like, you know, what is your voice and what is your ethos? And what are the things that you should be talking about and conversations that are already existing that you should be tapping into as right. opposed to just contributing to the noise? Um, I also think that, you know, there was a time where digital was new and you had the freedom to make a lot of mistakes. Unfortunately, like from the jump, you just have to be a bit more thoughtful and sophisticated in your practice. And unfortunately, that costs a little bit more money than, you know, snapping a photo with your camera phone, posting that to Instagram or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to cost a ton either. So, you know, it's, it's really about uh, ensuring that you have good bones and good structure for your communication and yeah, figuring out, you know, your own less is more. Right. It's a fine balance between having things be clear and high quality and also in the moment and relevant. Because what I've seen is companies that do spend a ton of money on outsourcing digital marketing teams and photographers and videographers, a lot of that content never even makes it out. Or by the time it makes it out, it's not relevant. So even when my conversations with people who work at Instagram, I realized that the statistics show that the content taken on iPhone cameras does better in terms of engagement than staged and professional content. And the same trend I'm noticing with fashion bloggers and a lot of food bloggers too, actually, it's the iPhone content in the moment stuff that resonates with people and lands better than the staged ultra professional magazine style stuff, because there's just more of a human touch to it. And I think with Instagram, we all started where it was more personal and then it became this thing where people build businesses and more professional. And now we're all being guided to bring the human being back into Instagram. Yeah, totally. Which, which I think, you know, for a company versus an individual, it's a much harder 
process to getting to what the human is because you're sort of creating a human if it wasn't there to begin with, or there's just so much like fear in being human still right. and behaving like a human. So, so yeah, that's, that's why it's really important for a brand to identify like what their stance is and what are the things that they care about that other people care about beyond just their product. Right. But yeah, I mean, like I love brands like hymns or outdoor voices or one of my clients, uh, ugly sparkling water. Um, Can you tell us more about that? Ugly sparkling water? (laughs) What's that about? Yeah. The ugly truth. Like they keep it real. It's just sparkling water, no sugar, no additives, pure good stuff. But they're really, they're really great brand. Founders are British and just brought ugly over to the U S that's such a funny name. Yeah. (laughs) I love it because it it really stands out. It makes you wonder and you're immediately intrigued. Like why would a sparkling water call themselves ugly? That seems counterintuitive. (laughs) Why do they? Does it symbolize something? Yeah. It's this idea of the ugly truth and exposing. Yeah. But I thought maybe it also like, isn't like the U G L Y might stand for something as well. Oh no, it's not an acronym. No. Okay. But anyway, all those brands, actually ugly, yeah. I mean, ugly is cool now, too, you know, like uh, ugly produce. Um, right. There are a few brands out there that are repurposing. Uh, all about you know. that. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty cool. It's cool to be ugly. I just <laughs> recently saw at Whole Foods for the first time a bag of greens that said ugly produce, and it was like a combination of different lettuces that says, this lettuce is, is not the pretty lettuce but it supports the farm and reduces the waste. And I was like, yes, this is so great. This is becoming a thing. And I remember Sweet Green came out with a salad that had roasted carrot peels in it with Dan Barber a few years ago. And that was just, first of all, it tasted amazing. And second, it was just such a cool concept. And it's so interesting how it's been a few years since that happened. And like things like that aren't really on the shelves yet. Yeah. I guess because people are not really trained to go for the so-called ugly things yeah yeah I read about a grocery store actually or I guess grocery is not a fair thing to call it but you know like a produce stand in the U.S. I forget where they originated but they exclusively sell seconds so ugly produce or produce that's like you know closer to expiration than than the the super fresh stuff or super fresh in in terms of like you know how how we define it yeah I think I'm pretty sure they're expanding but yeah, it's, I mean, the more nuanced part of the conversation, particularly around food that's not necessarily ugly, but yeah, is like nearer to going bad, uh, is just how that affects the taste profile. So like actually using something that is closer to expiration mm-hmm. or not at its peak freshness could give you a different flavor in what you're cooking, which is cool. It's like, it's a different piece of produce altogether. Right. So speaking of food, you did organize and co-found a big food conference, Bitten, and you also led a project called Thing of Wonder. I remember you were telling me when you were just starting it out, which is offline events. So what were the things that you learned from doing all of these IRL events? <laughs> like everything, because I had never, I mean, everything. I had never producing an event before, let alone a conference for over 400 people. I had never gotten sponsorships. I had never charged people to attend anything before. So, I mean, that was like the biggest learning experience I'd had since I started my career in marketing. And then with Thing of Wonder, it was 
all about mystery and it was technology free. So nobody was there snapping photos and posting to Instagram. Um, so that was a really interesting experience in terms of, you know, thinking about how to monetize it because it would also be really difficult to sell sponsorships if we couldn't sell the, like, a, a escape from the room promotion of the event because nobody would be talking about it outside of that room itself, but was also just an interesting uh, social experiment too, you know, to watch people arrive and they had to check their phones at the door and they weren't allowed to get them until they left. But you would watch people in the first five minutes were really uncomfortable, but then that was it. I mean, people were just so many people left and said it was their favorite night they ever had in New York. And, you know, I heard crazy stories about romantic relationships that were sparked as a result or, you know, people who went to the park later that night, sat on a bench and just talked about like really deep things for hours. And it was cool. It was, you know, ultimately we decided that we couldn't pursue it as a business, but, or, you know, we didn't have the heart to, but it was a really, really interesting social experiment. So what were the things that happened that made it people's favorite? I think that they were forced to interact with strangers, which you don't encounter that often unless there's like an ulterior motive, you know, like a networking event or mm. something, something with a real objective. Like there was no objective here other than to immerse yourself in a new experience. So I think people were really appreciative of just the uniqueness of that experience. And we rotated like halfway through the evening, we would rotate people's seats. So they got the opportunity to meet a oh, bunch of great. people, but not in the same way that you meet a bunch of people, you know, walking around a cocktail party or something, because you're actually seated with a group for an hour. And so it's intimate and you, you get into it. So I think the the opportunity to really get beneath the surface with total strangers is mm. something that's pretty unique, not just talk about the weather and what neighborhoods you live in, which are great things, but <laughs> right. So speaking of no technology, as someone who works very closely with this online world, how do you personally set boundaries with technology and with social media? I have rules. I'm actually on a bit of a phone diet right now, which I am not allowed to check my phone when immediately leaving someone's company. I was recently aware of that tick, like, you know, as soon as mm. I leave a meeting with someone and we part ways you know, I pull my phone out of my purse and check my email. Yes. Yeah. I do that too. So I'm not doing that one anymore. I'm not checking my phone when I'm walking. I'm going to just walk. <laughs> like mm. what a concept. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, if only for safety reasons alone, it's a good idea. But yeah, so I've just started to, I've really started to set some, you know, create some, some rules around my phone usage. Cause I also, it's my time at the end of the day and even just being available to clients or friends, you know, all the time, once again, going back to being alone in whatever form that takes, it's just so important. So I want to make sure that I'm, I'm not making myself available all the time to everyone. Oh my gosh, this is so powerful. You know, I was on the subway yesterday. I was passing by Bedford in Brooklyn and as I was on the train that was leaving the platform, I glanced at the totally packed platform. It was like peak time, probably 7 p.m. And like 90% of people walking or looking at their phones. And to me, I realized I do that most of the time probably as well. 
but then it just makes me so sad. And I can't really put words to why it makes me so sad, but it just seemed like this apocalyptic scene from the future. <laughs> yeah. What? Oh, shoot. Now the name is escaping me. It's a Joaquin Phoenix movie. Her. Yeah. I watched that right. a year ago. It was crazy, you know, and that's been a few years since its creation. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy to watch a movie that's supposed to be futuristic about like the demise of social interaction. And it was mm-hmm. felt really similar to what I experience on a daily basis. Mm. And I think like, you know, as a single woman too, in my circles of single women, we talk about how difficult it is to meet someone. And I look around and I'm like, well, hey ladies, you're not you're not giving yourself the opportunity because how are you supposed to interact with anyone when you're always interacting on your phone? And it's not just dating, but there's missed out, you know, what happened to small talk? Right. What happened to I don't know, better understanding human being because you engage with in conversation with a stranger who lives a different life than you on the train. Like you're not going to do that because you're on your phone. So, right. Okay. I'm inspired to do a challenge where for a week, we all the whole woke and white community, this is probably going to air beginning of the year. So we can co-host phone diet challenge. How about that? Yes. Great. Because I think that's exactly the reason we just automatically pick up our phone, even when we don't have anything to check and we don't need to. And there's so much more space and headspace that frees up when we actually intentionally choose to do certain things versus just automatically picking up our phone. Yeah. I mean, I I spent a month in Italy this summer. I sound like I just never work and just spend months exactly. places, but I do, I do one month abroad every summer. So this year it was Italy and I set really clear boundaries during this month of, you know, five working hours in the morning, mm-hmm. then beach time, then dinner time, then book, then bed. Like that was it every day, basically. For mm-hmm. And I realized that during the beach time, I was so bored because I wasn't on my phone that mm-hmm. I had like the best original thought. Like I, I just, I guess I remember what it was like to think because I feel like, you know, we're so attached to our phones. We don't allow ourselves boredom, which is when you start to really, you know, come up with things. And we, yeah, that's something else that we've lost entirely too. <laughs> I love that. We actually talked about boredom quite a bit in episode with Katie Delbu, host of the Let It Out podcast. And she was saying how right now, pretty much boredom is just like you're saying is is the access to space and creativity and with our phones always in our hands we kind of have forgotten to just be yeah and i guess we're coming back to human being human being (laughs) yep (laughs) you ready for a short round of rapid fire questions yes okay so when do you feel the most aligned and present in the morning is that how is that how rapid fire <laughs> that's just the first thing that comes to me i'm an early riser so i typically go for a walk or go to the gym and so i get to experience like in, in new york that's not yet awake or mm. very limited in its population which feels like a special little early risers club um so yeah i think the fact that it is less noisy and less populated makes me feel more with myself. I love that. And New York is magical in the morning. It is. It really is. Okay. What's your, what was your favorite computer game growing up? I wasn't much of a computer game 
gal. I guess, um, I mean, I played Oregon Trail. Does that count? What is it? <laughs> what is Oregon Trail? I feel people listening, my, I, it was like the most popular, I think it was the only game available on like the first Mac computer. That sounds like it really dates me. I don't know when the first Mac computer <laughs> was, but it couldn't have been that long ago. I'm not that old. Yeah, I, I, you basically like follow the Oregon Trail. You're basically trying to survive, if I remember it correctly. And there are a lot of reasons why that's difficult. <laughs> I don't know. There are people dying in your cart in which you travel, your wagon. I forget why they're dying. Maybe because you, you didn't acquire enough, the right amount of food. So that's part of the game. Yeah, I don't know. But if anyone listening also played this game, please let me know by messaging me at Woke and Wired on Instagram. I want to know because I didn't get a MacBook until 2010 when I started dating my first American boyfriend and he introduced me to the world of Apple. Okay, back to you. What was your first nickname online that you remember? Or maybe like an inbox name? My instant messenger name was MGEM and my first blog was Peanut Butter Prerogative. Ooh, explain, please. <laughs> it was my prerogative to eat peanut butter. I guess this goes back to your question, who has 12 jars of coconut butter? I mean, I don't admittedly <laughs> have that many at one time, but I do love, I do love a nut butter. Uh, it's a bit of an good addition. What's your favorite nut butter right now? <sighs> I mean, I hate to say it, but I've actually been having a lot of the powdered stuff in my smoothies, the like naked peanut butter and not so much the spread stuff. Mm. But there's also, I think it's called, it might be called something similar, naked almond butter. I have to follow up with you in the actual name of it. But yeah, <laughs> so this important. is the problem when you, I have the same issue with music. It's like, if you ask me what your favorite song, mm. I listen to so many. I, <laughs> I don't right. have a favorite. I have a very casual, limited experience with all of my nut butters. <laughs> okay, next thing. What is the best thing that happened to you on social media? Mm. I mean, my life. <laughs> That gives mm -hmm. it a lot of credit, but I got my first job at Chobani due to the blog that I had, which I guess what? you can, yeah. I mean, pretty much the weirder part of that story is I actually got the job through Craigslist, which I don't think anyone gets a job on Craigslist anymore. Wow. Well, I've certainly found boyfriends on Craigslist, but not a job. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I haven't heard that one. It was before. like 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. It could be trusted then, I guess. Right. Yeah, basically I had this blog. So the blog was, you know, an example of my voice and my interest in food and my like honest passion for the product because I wrote about it a lot. So mm -hmm. were you hoping to get a job at Chobani or did it just happen? No, it just happened. Yeah. So, wow. so that was cool. But yeah, I've, I've also, I mean, as you have, I've made a lot of really great friends uh, through Instagram and blogs. So I am so grateful for it. Right. Okay. And one more question that is especially for you. I don't ask anyone else this question. Mm. You ready? Yes. <laughs> what are top three New York restaurants from your experience in the past three years? And you don't have to think too hard. Just think about the first things that come to mind. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, as previously stated, I don't return a lot of places. So it is a difficult one for me to answer. But I love Isodi in the West Village. I go to Italy every year now for the past five years around Thanksgiving. So I pride myself on being a pretty good taste tester for Italian cuisine. And Isodi mm. passes very well. All right. One of my 
favorite places to go for solo date night specifically is Mineta Tavern. Where's that? That is in Greenwich Village. And what's and the food? It's, I mean, they're known for their burger. They got two options for you. Everything else that they have doesn't even really matter. You should only get the burger. But I think everything else they offer is like, you know, elevated steakhouse fare. But it's just the setting in there. It's like feels very New York and it's got like a sexiness and mm. sophistication to it. Dim so. lights. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dim lights. Great. I think there's like red leather booths, you know, mahogany, like the whole deal. It's great. And my third, maybe I'll give you like something I'm liking right now. I just had an amazing salad at Don Angie, which is uh, also, I think they would define themselves as being Italian. Also in the West Village. I don't know what my deal is with the West Village, but <laughs> good concentration of my restaurants. Anyway, I had a chrysanthemum salad there and it was so simple, but just beautiful, like an impeccable salad that I think I said to the bartender, I was like, I just want to eat this forever. So. <laughs> I love those conversations with bartenders. I find myself so playful when I'm out alone. Yeah. Yeah. I am very flirtatious. Yeah. Okay. Wow. My last question to you, Emily, is, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you would like to share? Mm, no. I. How do other people answer that question? <laughs> no. <laughs> those were great questions. I, I've so enjoyed talking about all of the things we've talked about. Awesome. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends, leave a review, and find all the show notes on wokeandwired.com and connect with me on Instagram at wokeandwired. Stay woke, stay wired, and have an incredible day.